Hello listeners, uh, my name's Luke, I am the producer for Mayfest Radio. What you're about to hear is a podcast recorded specially for Mayfest Radio uh, as part of the series None of Us Is Yet A Robot, where Emma Franklin interviews Selena Thompson about uh, a range of issues. There is quite a lot of swearing in this uh, piece, so if that's something you have an aversion to, uh, I would approach this with uh, caution and potentially play it away from uh, young or uh, smaller ears of children. Uh, up next, it's Emma Franklin and Selena Thompson, and I will leave you to the programme intro. Welcome to uh, None of Us Is Yet A Robot, the podcast. If you're listening to this on Mayfest Radio, then um, I'm guessing you're probably joining us for the first time. So, welcome. Um, My name is Emma Franklin, and I am a uh, theatre maker and performance maker. I'm a trans woman, and this podcast is ordinarily a space for me to talk with other trans women or gender non-conforming individuals. Um, We always keep the topics very open, we just talk about um, whatever happens to be uh, floating our boat at that particular moment. However, we're invited to record an episode by Mayfest in response to um, the festival and my intention was to come down to Bristol, use it as an excuse to see some shows that were on um, and to talk about that. However, I was slightly scuppered by the um, train strike this week which meant that I didn't make it to Bristol Uh, I'd fully intended to see uh, Selena Thompson's show Salt and talk about it in actuality what I've done is I've talked with Selena about that show so here is a conversation with Selena about Salt, about our experiences of being theatre makers who make personal work, autobiographical work, about how we look after ourselves or don't look after ourselves within that process, about how we uh, don't allow ourselves to be consumed by the audience. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and although it's over Skype, I, uh, I hope that you enjoy it as well. I'll catch you on the other side, but in the meantime, here is... None of us is yet a robot. Mayfest Radio Special with Selena Thompson. Okay, hello and welcome to an, a special episode of None of Us Is Yet a Robot, the podcast, because today we are not only recording for um, online 
wonderful audience, this is going to be put onto Mayfest Radio. Um, and I'm speaking, I'm joined today virtually because um, I'm not in Bristol, I'm in London, um, but I'm joined virtually from Bristol by Selena Thompson, who is one of the artists performing at Mayfest. Hey, Selena. Hi, <laughs> How are you? That's really um, good. That's really good care for artists. Yeah, it was incredible. That's um, really good. And I feel like an actual human being again now, which I didn't yesterday. Cool. Um, so yeah. Amazing. Um, I'd like to come back to that diversity talk. I think it's really interesting that neither of us were able to get, to get there. <laughs> <clears throat> I think it says a lot about what um, what's going on. But before we start... Um, I, hey, new listeners from Mayfest Radio. The way that this podcast works is that um, generally I'm talking uh, about issues of gender because that's where my practice focuses. Um, today, I guess we're—I mean, well, gosh, it's all part of the same conversation. But we're—you um, know—we're going to probably be well, well open. But um, the first question that I ask everybody is about identity. Um, so, how do you identify? Well, just gender gender in rabbit ears, inverted commas. Um, I think whatever that says to you, because I think for me to put anything onto it says about my, what, what is significant to me, because I have an order of things that I would identify as, but they're not necessarily the same as you. And I'm also aware that day to day and place to place, that order also shifts, right? Yeah. Um, well, at the beginning of every show, in my sort of like, I'm laying out the basics of who I am. I say that I'm Selena Thompson, I'm 26 years old, I'm black and a woman. And that's my like mm-hmm. list of things. Um, what other list of things? And everything else just can say a question mark. Uh huh. It's none of business. <laughs> so that's kind of that's me. Yeah. Okay. And you're and um, when you're you say you're a woman, you are a cisgender woman, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, what do I want to say? So you're making you're performing your show Salt in the festival. Yeah. Are you able to say what? that's about for anyone who hasn't yeah. seen it yeah <laughs> like I think, what, yeah somewhere that was kind of like if you have to have big unveiled in your show it can't be that good anyway and i was like number one ow and number <laughs> two all right i'll just tell everybody what's going to happen before it happens <laughs> um 
So in February, I um, got on a cargo ship in, or a freighter, whatever you want to call it, in Antwerp in Belgium. And I sailed from there to Ghana, then flew from Ghana to Jamaica, then sailed back uh, to the UK. So I was retracing this random Atlantic slave triangle. I got back about five weeks ago, <laughs> and then we made a show about it. Wow. Um, and it's the show kind of presents that journey, um, gives a sort of overview of as much as I can of why I felt the need to make it. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where I'm trying to articulate to an audience something I don't actually know. Yeah. Um, but it's all a bit Kate Bushy and sort of like starts at the bottom of the sea and with a great big white dress and mm. 25 kilos of salt and worlds that are built and destroyed. It's, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Is it anywhere near what you thought it might be when you set off? Or when you conceived it? Yeah. Do you ever do you ever get this thing, the stuff you make, mm. where it's both exactly what you thought it was going to be <laughs> and completely different from what you thought it was going to be at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's that. Okay. So, like, when I read it and when I look at it, I go, oh, yeah, of course it's that. Because yeah. I've been talking about that for ages. But every now and again, there's something where I'm like, well, this is, this is unexpected. Hmm. Um, and it's also this thing where, like, I can remember speaking with somebody when I was in Jamaica, and they were like, so do you know how it's going to end yet? And I was like, yeah, because <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to the UK. Like, I've always said how it's going to end, because I'm doing a closed circuit. Yeah. Um, so it's this thing where, like, in terms of like linearity, things like beginning, middle, end, mm-hmm. it's very, very simple. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what it says on the tin. Um, it's all of the weird development of as a person mm-hmm. stuff that I couldn't really anticipate. So, mm. and then dying was really pivotal in the work, and I could never have predicted that. Mm-hmm. Um, I am adopted. And retracing that route pulled out loads of stuff for me about my adoption, which really shaped the work. I've never anticipated that. Mm-hmm. Um, the filmmaker who I bought with me had a really tough time, mm-hmm. and we had to send that person home. Okay. So that completely dictated the ship, the ship, the trip. Um, the sailors on the first trip were super racist. We wow. did not quite anticipate that. So that also wow. changed things. Um, we were told we weren't allowed to film on that first ship as well, okay. which meant that literally one of the materials of the show disappeared. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it changed loads. It, on one level, it's like transformed before all recognition. The grammar in that sentence was a mess, but you know <laughs> what I mean. But on the other hand, yeah, I look at it and I'm like, well, there's a big monologue at the beginning. There was always going to be that. Mm-hmm. I'm in a big white dress. There was always going to be that. Mm-hmm. There's a foot ton of salt. There was always going to be that. Yeah. Um, and I'm at the bottom of the sea. 
and there was mm. always going to be that. Yeah. And those huge things have stayed mm-hmm. strong. Um, and it's on a, for me anyway, for me it's on a big stage because it's in the main performance space in the Arnold Theme, okay. which is really important to me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's interesting that, isn't it? I've just finished... Um, <clears throat> performing rituals for change again last week at the yard and then um down at the caravan showcase in brighton and myth who I, who designed the show who i've been one of the people that i worked with making it it seems really reductive to say designed the show because i feel like actually all of those roles got really blurred beautifully but um we finally added in um, this video element to it just last week. That's new. Which we'd never had before um, because we we sort of played with it and then we took it out because it felt like actually it was just getting in, at that that early stage last year, it was just getting in the way and it was a bit, it had a, you know, video has a texture of fakeness that's sometimes a bit hard to deal with, especially when you're dealing with such natural elements throughout as we are. But there was a point when that went up and Myth just came over and went, now it's it's all the drawings that you ever did. And it was. And I can go back to my my notebook and all of the elements are there from my very, very first weekend of writing on it. <laughs> Projection, the tower, the circles, the stuff. I had no idea how to get there. And actually, we didn't get there because it was in the notebook. It's only retrospectively looking back. But it's funny because that particular show, more so, so the previous show that I made, Language, took like three years to make and I'm performing it next week and I've got to rewrite it entirely because it needs rewriting again because that stuff just keeps changing and it's too complicated. And in a way, Rituals for Change we made in like three weeks came together, boom. Like so, And obviously, I don't know how that happened or what makes one, one project do that and another project not, but it did just feel like... It didn't need much more to it. So, yeah, it's funny that. Um, so, I mean, I, so I saw Rituals, Caravan, Sunday Just Gone, if you're first listening on the radio, every mm-hmm. radio you um, And I think one of the many things that I loved about it is just everything about it is like perfectly in sync. So the materials, like the form and the content, mm. match so perfectly. There's absolutely no tension between it. And I remember when the video came on, it was a surprise to me mm-hmm. because I didn't know there was video in it in the documentation I've seen. Yeah. I've not seen that. But it was perfect because it revealed what you were doing and what you yeah. were constructing and what you were putting together in such a, like, perfect way and I can it makes sense that that's a piece that would almost come out of your head fully formed mm. do you know what I mean watching it, it kind of well, it's not that complicated you know the, mm. the actions themselves it's like okay get an axe and some wood okay what we're going to do with it well we're going to chop the wood like you know <laughs> there wasn't too many questions I, I did get left in the room a bit by Ailey with like okay you want salt? I'll come back in two hours, see what you come up with with the salt. Because the it was also always going to be artificial. Those rituals were going to be constructed and made up and artificial. Um, and the only thing that we knew was that we didn't want to, I didn't want to appropriate from 
other like to go into ritual I didn't want to strain to kind of um yeah appropriation so we were like okay these are all these are all materials that are universal they definitely have a history within my family and genealogy and going back so let's just play and let's make up new stuff rather than look at what rituals look like and try and emulate them and obviously there's always going to be some kind of fluidity between that because there's only so many things you can do with a thing to yourself but um yeah we just we just kind of made them up so um coming back to the show that is actually in Mayfest as opposed to the one that isn't um hey Mayfest radio are you have you still got shows on have you got one more to do one more tonight. Okay, so, all right, cool. So there's no chance to see either of the either of these shows at Mayfest, but that's cool. We can talk about them. But um, I think it's nice to have them both in the conversation because the similarity... But I've been thinking about how to how I would describe your work. So I haven't seen Salt, but I've seen um, Dark and Lovely, and I've seen... Um, Chewing the Fat? Yeah. Um... And there's a similarity between what I'm doing with None of Us Is Yet, a robot project, that at the basic level, we are talking autobiographically about an aspect, a, a thing that, is, that shapes our lives or is a feature of our lives. But also, I feel like that's super reductive to talk about your work in that way, because when I watch Dark and Lovely and when I watch Chewing the Fat, there's, uh, it's obviously much more than just your experience, and your, and I think this, I mean, this is a thing about maybe about good autobiographical work that you go to the super personal, and that allows me as the audience to to think about myself and to consider my relationship to those things, and it's almost counterintuitive that the more you know because you go there. I'm allowed, I'm, I have the space to think about, you know, my world or the people that I know. So it feels like a, a really, like an opening out rather than a closing down. It's not like Louis yeah. Theroux documentary, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really aware in, so I mentor two younger artists. We both do autobiographical work. Mm. And I think when you're starting out with autobiographical work, the sort of word that like, wakes you up at like three o'clock in the morning and sort of haunts you it's like self-indulgent yeah and oh, um, it's sort of idea of therapy on stage hmm. but i was really lucky that when i was mentored my advice was to like delve as deeply into my subjectivity as possible hmm. um i did brian kimmings workshop mm-hmm. last year and it's like a five-day thing and the first day we're just talking about yourself mm-hmm. she's getting you to absolutely try as, as much as you can feasibly ever know yourself just trying to get you to really be like what are the limits of my personality what are the limits of my um experience mm-hmm. because whatever i am is going to be in the world um and i guess with dark and lovely and chewing the fat they both come from so i made chewing the fat because in my last year of uni there was one girl who Left at the end of second year, like a size 16, came back at the beginning of third year, size 6. Wow. And it sort of sent these, like, ripples through mm. my year. Because it's that thing of, like, somebody is like, stood in front of you mm-hmm. with sort of eating disorder in plain sight. Like, yeah. 
you know what it's like at uni, you all live in this tiny bubble. People would see her going running and throwing up and then continuing to run. So this thing is happening. It's like right there, mm. but it's like the sun. No one looks directly at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but everybody kind of just exploded mm-hmm. for a year. Like it just, it was like she'd ripped the lid off all of these body things, food things that mm. permeate the life of sort of young people. Yeah. Like, I'm not even going to try and make it gender because I don't think that's true. Mm. And I really desperately wanted to try and how can we look at the sun? How can we have mm. this conversation? And the only way that it felt, the only way I felt like I could do it was to tell my story and mm-hmm. to be as honest as I could. Yeah. And then it's this thing where, like, someone stood in front of you and they've made themselves really, really vulnerable and really, really abject. Mm-hmm. And they're still standing, yeah? No one's dead. They haven't died. Yeah. So we can all do that. We can all have this, like, abject conversation, whether we have it with each other or we have it with ourselves. My idea is that if I take the plunge and do it first, mm-hmm. And hopefully, touch wood, it becomes easier for you to do it. Yeah. Whereas with Dark and Lovely, I think, I'm with Dark and Lovely, I didn't start from wanting to do that, but it got to the stage where I had to. Mm-hmm. Because I'm having all of these conversations with people, and there comes a point where we're like, we're running out of language because it's too painful to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you're speaking to young women who are activists in their community, mm. yeah? They're like people who are used to being the only black face in a white space. Mm. They work hard. They know all about white beauty standards. Mm. They know it all. They know all the theory. But still, there's this part of you that like goes home at night and kind of wishes you looked a bit different. Yeah. Kind of wishes it wasn't that. And it's this thing... That I think is like such a tragedy. I think of anybody with any marginalised identity is you can know all the theory, you can know all the stuff, but it was still being planted in your head yeah. from before you could read or write or figure out the world around you. And undoing that is like lifelong work, which you might not ever be able to do for you mm. or for your kids or for your grandkids. There's a thing that I am. Um, I think I feel I quote it in every single fucking podcast episode mm. and oh, I wonder if we can swear on the radio yeah um, I did okay I um yeah. in every single podcast episode and it's this con- and, I, and I never remember who said it so maybe I need to research it and so I know but it's this concept of the cop in the head and that there's this self-policing voice which is as you say yeah. it's the one that we've all learned and all internalized um there's I mean that thing of, be, of of you standing and saying your story so that other people it becomes easier for other people and that we can look at the sun. I mean, I feel so much with your work that, you know, that is, you're giving us permission to look at the sun. You're providing the safety glasses with the tint and by saying it's okay, you know, the colander with a hole in it, by saying it's okay to... Um, to look at this and to listen to this story, you're, you're giving us a way in to um, see that. But we were, so we were talking a minute ago before we started about the self-care within that though, that, you know, 
so you place yourself and also I'm aware that I forgot to mention race cards which was another piece of yours that I've seen which I absolutely um, found extraordinary when I saw it at, at Buzzcut but I mean another piece that you're, re you're, ver you're absolutely placing yourself between us and the sun and allowing us to look or facilitating us to be able to look at the, this, these topics that are so so big it's really hard to find a way in and yet it's really important to find the way in because just to say something so big so we can't find the way in is an excuse and a way of not actually um not engaging with it oh well it's too big we just can't do that isn't is not acceptable but um but yeah I mean this where's the self-care in that so it's great that you've been able to spend the day at the spa but um <laughs> But it's kind of like, how do we, how do we get to the point where where that's not necessary? How do you build that into the work? Or yeah, because that was that that I think is what I'm. So I might touch on race cards just quickly, mm -hmm. and then come back to like salt and the conversation that we were talking about just pre podcasts. So um, race cards initially was a piece of work where I was sat in a room. <laughs> 12 hours at a desk, uh, writing as many questions about race as I could, uh, and then it grew to 24 hours to write a thousand questions. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been done at festivals, so at Buzzcut and Forest Fringe, which I think, which I think for artists in our bit of the sector are both really safe spaces. Yeah. Like, they're spaces where you are, I think, very free to fail. Mm -hmm. um, and spaces where your friends are there. Yeah. Your friends are there, and it actually it's not about programmers. Mm. It's about artists. Mm -hmm. um, but when I did it at Forest Fringe, um, I was really ill. I had just gone back onto antidepressants, mm. and there's that bit, like if you, don't, if you know, you know, but if you don't know, there's a bit when you first go on antidepressants where they just, like, smash your head apart like everything just like and it's like this horrible thing that you have to get through mm. for them to work but for a while it's like oh it was awful it was awful um and i was there as an emerging artist with the british council and doing this really intense performance and people loved it but i said to emma i'm never doing this again <laughs> i'm never doing this again um but it's already been commissioned for fear so I said, can we find a way of doing it without my body in it? Mm -hmm. So can it work as installation? Can we come up with a really robust set of instructions mm. so that people can participate? I don't know if that's the right word for race cards, but people can experience it and I don't have to be there. Mm -hmm. And it's taken us like nine months to figure out how to do that well. Mm -hmm. But now it's up as an installation in London, and I'm not there. And so it means that that work is there, and I'm very present in it. Yeah. It's like a thousand questions that have come out of my head. But I'm not there. Mm -hmm. I don't carry the residue of that work. Mm -hmm. It's doing what it needs to do. We've managed, I think, someone emailed me about it yesterday, and they described race cards as a safe space. Mm -hmm. And I was like, absolutely overjoyed by that description of the work. Um, but I'm safe within that work. It yeah. can go where it needs to go. It can yeah, do yeah. what it needs to do. 
and I'm all right. And I guess that what I'm trying, I guess that what I'm doing, and it's not the only wrong, but I'm trying to figure out how I take my body out of the performances I do. Mm-hmm. Because I just don't think I can... The way that we make work is so subject to other things. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in an ideal world, after I had got off the ship, I would have had six months to make the show. Mm. But we were subject to like cargo shipping yeah. routines, and then we and then Mayfest May is in May. That's that, <laughs> that. Do you know what I'm thinking? Like, and I don't doubt for a minute that if Matthew and Kate could have moved the festival for me, they would have done. <laughs> but that's just not how it works. Yeah. So it means that there are lots of things that actually make it very, very difficult for you to build safety around the world mm-hmm. because there's only so much control that you have. Mm. And I'm aware that things like a spa day, for example, is wonderful, just what I needed. But that isn't – that's cure rather than prevention. Yeah, exactly. And actually – Prevention is what I'm interested in. Yeah. How are we making sure that I'm not getting to a period where a venue kind of is like, we're going to have to really spoil you and pamper you because mm. we're worried about you. Yeah. Um, and I'm lucky and blessed to be working with a festival that cares mm-hmm. enough to do that. Yeah. But, you know, what if we've, we've all worked with hostile venues, well, ca- especially when you're putting up radical work. Totally. Well, I mean, that that cares and that has the resources to do so as well, because, I mean, a a lot of spaces that care greatly, but again, I mean, the sector we're in and the bit of the sector that we're in, it's not like we're dealing with the opera house or wherever. So, I mean, it's it's that as well. And, I mean, you're going to... There's hostility. I mean, there's hostile venues, but then there's also the... There's the audience that you're going out and you're placing your body we place our bodies in front of let's hope a room full of people we don't know all of because you know and I think stepping back to when you were talking about forest and and buzz cut I think there's a there's a really interesting thing that perhaps doesn't always get talked about as a positive about some we're always reaching audiences how do we reach an audience how do we get out there how do we expand demographics how do we do things and I think actually spaces that are predominantly artists and people who are into reading art and theater and stuff I think they're really important I don't think they're negative at all I think it it's just about how they exist and then also there are spaces that exist that get to other audiences I don't think it has to be that every performance ever needs to reach um an an underserved audience in order to justify it but um but yeah when we are in these positions and then actually there's the thing of so I'm just um Abby and I, with none of us as yet a robot, we just got a bit of funding um, from Welcome Trust, yeah, uh, specifically to to trial taking Rituals for Change and getting it in front of a predominantly trans or non-gender conforming audience. And also, like, how do we support that? How do we care for that audience? How do we care for, you know, actually a lot of talk about how do we care for the audience, not so much about how do we care for ourselves. So let's maybe think about that. But then in between that space, which we're going to create, which hopefully will be awesome, and the space that's for artists where we know we're supported and loved because we know people and we 
are established enough in our own practice that we feel maybe confident enough to to be okay in that space. Then there's the middle space, which is where you are now. Like, okay, it's the Arnolfini. A bunch of people are going to come, or it's wherever. It's some, you know, it's somewhere in another in another town, and there's little control. And probably the people who are going to come and see that are not necessarily people from the demographic that you're hoping to reach or coming from. And then there's, I think that's when I feel, I, I was surprised last week how vulnerable I felt during the run at the yard that the audience was predominantly, if not exclusively, cisgendered. Um, and that pretty much the people who I read as transgender or knew, knew to be trans were people who I'd invited. Um, and there came a point in that week where suddenly it didn't feel as safe as as I'd hoped, and it felt or it didn't feel as clear as I'd hoped. And it's not that that work is only for a trans audience; it's absolutely not. But yeah, there, it almost flipped during. There was one night that I didn't enjoy at all, and it was during that night that it kind of really flipped for me, and I suddenly felt here I here I was talking about the experience of being looked at in the street from the safety of a space that I have created for myself. And I suddenly felt it there. I was like, this is not, this is not the um, idea. <laughs> so, leading on from that, but sort of bouncing off it, mm. bouncing off it, it makes me think of the chat that I had with Sue. Um, this is Sue, so Ma- Sue McLean. This is Sue McLean, whose show is at Mayfair. Go and see it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Can I start again, please? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, so I didn't go and see it when it was a caravan because it's about trauma. And I was like, Sue, I can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I finish so, I'm all over it. But I just, I can't do it. And she and I had a really lovely chat. And she was talking about how do you build your self-care into the work? Mm-hmm. And she was like, is it something as simple as putting something in right at the beginning that reminds you as the artist that you are just in a room with a group of people. But it's not... Because there's something about... So Dark and Lovely feels safe for me a lot of the time because there's no fourth wall. Mm-hmm. And the lack of fourth wall gives me a great deal of control, actually. Mm-hmm. So has a sort of semi-permeable fourth wall. Okay. And I've said that rituals for change has a semi-permeable yeah. fourth wall. So I think when I saw it, something went wrong with a light or a record, mm-hmm. and you were able to be like, oh, we all saw that, didn't yeah, we? Yeah. And it was like, look, with laughter, and then you carried on. So everybody sat in the audience, and they all know that you are you, and that mm-hmm. you're talking about your experience, and you are not pretending that we're not there. It's mm-hmm. not the kind of performance where if someone's coughing, they're yeah. going to want to hide away. Yeah. But what that kind of means is that you as an artist carry all the vulnerability that you would get with being face-to-face and talking to someone mm-hmm. without having any of the protection that a fourth wall gives you of a split between yourself and audience. Yeah. So how... How can you flip that dynamic? Yeah. How can you flip it so that there is 
some protection for you in there. Do you need to do something? I need to plug the I need to plug the laptop in. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to die any second. <laughs> well, you're not going to die, but I won't be able to see you. Hang on. <laughs> I've got one just here. Ah. Sorry, I was desperately trying not to break the flow of that. No, that's I, fine. I, I couldn't see where um where the charger was. Ah. Um I think it's really important. I felt actually there's um something that happens when the audience come in to Rituals for Change that I always try. So I feel like, um, is that going to come on? Yeah, there we go. Boom. Um, there's a real convention in this kind of theatre to begin with. Hello, I'm Emma. This is me. Um, and it's like, and it gets kind of um, taken like it gets made fun of a little bit, but it's the most efficient way of explaining the rules of of that space, actually, because within one with one sentence, you've you've explained it. You've said, "I can see you. This is real." Um, and actually, with rituals for change, because I don't do that, but I try and like at the beginning, if so, like if people are there that I know, or there's a chance with the audience to kind of say hello as they come in just to be like oh it's it's okay and we and you came in and I was genuinely really happy to see you in the audience and then yeah. I came and so I came over and then we had a hug and stuff and I was like oh this is great because yeah. that it feels so important to me to break that fourth wall yeah even before the show's begun to just because it can get quite it can feel quite heavy otherwise rituals mm. and then it and then it doesn't help because heaviness doesn't help um, I don't want people to feel sorry for me or to feel that I'm vulnerable in a situation. So yeah, that that happening was really nice. And also when that happens, it says to me, I'm like, I've got a friend in. Yeah. I'm going to be okay because yeah. I know that there's someone in this audience who I can trust and who loves me. And so if things are difficult, there's this person there. Yeah. So there is a genuine yeah. um, relief in that. But yeah, you were talking about the, then the the flipping of it. So this with the yeah, because how do you how do you it's it's very much about you. I think we just we spend so much time when we are presenting trauma or traumatic material, mm. thinking about how we make it safe for an audience. Mm. And I think we're always the after yeah and for me it feels very important that i need to change that because can your audience ever truly be safe in the work if you're not safe in it yeah and safety isn't always what we want for the work right mm -hmm. like bits of salt are profoundly unsafe mm -hmm. and they have to be because they are i can't make things which aren't safe in life yeah. safe in fear but 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 you should be safe within that. Yeah, I should. And it, it's something, I feel like it's something to do with... Mm. I don't know. Maybe I don't know yet. Maybe I still need to let the, the cogs turn a bit. But... I think it's something about, is it something about not trying to hide the labour of mm -hmm. what you're doing? Is it something about, so for me, one of the most like powerful moments for me 
of doing soul, standing in front of people and being like, so I went, I'm not really sure why I went. I didn't find what I was looking for. And when I came home, everything had changed. I made this show in five weeks and it was only the second time I'd used my passport and like the first time I've travelled as an adult. Mm -hmm. There's something for me which is kind of like being able to stand there and be like, I don't need you to feel sorry for me, Mm -hmm. but I do need you to know that like, I'm not standing here with anything to prove to you Mm -hmm. because I've I've done that graph. I don't need to put myself through something for you. Yeah. Right, right now, in the next hour and a half, because yeah. this is this is like my life, mm-hmm. and it's something about creating a creating a balance, and then not being it. Especially if you're going forward in front of an audience with a body that is other or othered. I'm doing the quotation marks maybe, mm-hmm. or a story that is seen as a story of the other. Mm-hmm. That not becoming something which is consumed by an audience in yeah. a really toxic way. Yeah. Um, it's all a bit of a mess in my head at the moment. It's coming... Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very articulate, um, mm-hmm. what you're saying. And I think... That thing of this performance, this live performance, this bit at the end, which too often, because of the parlance of again the industry and the way that we make work, and you were talking before about the um, the things that the work is subject to, i.e., festival deadlines and mm-hmm. funders' requirements and things like this. Remembering that you know that it it doesn't have to be that the performance is the pinnacle of a experience as you say this is I'm getting way more comfortable with describing what I do as art and my life and life as practice and then the you know performances are part of that but it's not the it's not a capitalist model of production whereby this is the product and you can buy the product and you know everything else went into making that product and adds to its value or or whatever Um, because I think you've got to be, yeah, like, I don't want to come and see you go through something. When I was at drama school studying classical acting, um, the very brilliant guy who, who ran that course, um, Rob Clare, like he was, it was absolutely the entire course could be boiled down to don't act, don't act just like, what did he used to say? For fuck's sake, don't just act, stand there. Um, because there's nothing more, there's nothing less interesting than watching someone try to like squeeze out an emotion. Um, and actually there's something about being in that performance where you, you know, I need you to be facilitating and holding the space to communicate something. And I think the best way of communicating it is not necessarily to see you experience it, especially if it's trauma for you. And for us, or for, as you say, maybe not the us that's watching, because it's theatre in the UK, but that is a trauma for the the other, a group of other um, people. I mean, with, with None of Us Is Yet a Robot work, 
really early on when I was working with Rachel Mars kind of supported the work, supported me, was a sort of dramaturg friend, got like helper through these two years where I was exploring what it meant to be coming out as trans through in a rehearsal process. Hardly any of that work made it in front of an audience because it was not for an audience. It was for me. And at the time that I came to first start sharing it, it was like almost backdated. So everything that I've stood on the stage and said that at time, you know, it's difficult to still stand on a stage and say some things, but they're generally, they're things that I've made peace with maybe not many months before or many weeks before, but I've made peace with them before I'm standing there and giving them to you. And maybe the next show will be about the thing that today I'm having a problem with, but you know, it felt important to, to, it's so like, God, it sounds like a terrible job. Like backdate the pain, you know, backdate where the trauma is before before going out there. No, but, I think you're completely right. Completely right. And I think something I realised last year, not last year, last week, is that this is like the first time actually that I've made a new work in two years. Right. So I made Dark and Lovely in like February 2014, mm-hmm. then had a year where I did nothing with it, mm-hmm. then got it back ready to tour. So by the time that it actually went on tour and the majority of people saw it, the issues in that are dealt with mm-hmm. from my point of view. Yeah. And it was the same with you in the fact, like I made it at uni, played about with it a little bit more just after I graduated, so this is 2012. Mm. It then goes on tour in 2014. Mm-hmm. So there's always a, a gap. Um, the first iteration of the work is always very raw, mm. quite abject and messy, and then I ignore it for like a year and then come back to it mm. distance. Um, and it, I, don't, I don't feel like things massively change mm-hmm. after the distance, not to me anyway, yeah. but my producer Emma, who's on the outside looking in, she can see how much it changes. Because yeah. you just have the, you're less precious with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Then, yeah, you can see the politics in mm. it more. There's definitely a point coming back to rituals this time um, <clears throat> after six months yeah. and being able to like sit down with, so with Ailey McCaskill, who I also work with on the show, who's like a Brit was, was a brilliant um, director, dramaturg, outside eye person, but um, to sit and to be able to say, okay, this is the piece. Now, how do I perform it? How do I become the performer of this piece? Yeah. That actually maybe, you know, it's, how important is it that it's me within this? Yeah. I could stand to see someone else in that piece. Mm-hmm. It's probably unlikely to happen, but you know, like, it, how how do I shift my role from being the person who's experienced these things that I'm talking about to being the person who's going to embody them and and communicate them today? And yeah. that's been for that. I mean, it's funny because then I had that feeling last week of in in performance, but that was more about who was in the room. But as a performer, I feel like then super comfortable <laughs> with it. Um. There was a thing that I wanted to to mention because I was listening to another podcast. Um, Brilliant podcast. Uh, There's a trans woman called Merit Kopas um, in the States who does a podcast called Woodland um, Creatures. Woodland Creatures? No. What's it called? 
I'm going to look at it now. It's called ah, Woodland Secrets. Um, and there was an episode where she speaks to um, the writer Imogen Binney, um, another trans woman. And they, I Imogen talks about... They're, so they're both awesome women, right? So it's a, a total joy to listen to. I will link to this episode in the notes because it's really good. But um, they quote someone who I'd never heard of called Jean Baker Miller from a book called Towards a New Psychology of Women. Um, but the thing, the quote was about work that is made, art that is made by marginalised groups, by people from marginalised groups, goes through three stages. And the first stage is we're just like you. And then the second stage is we're nothing like you. And then the third stage is, well, you don't matter. This is for us. <laughs> Um, and I really love it. And I'm just keep trying to think about like the work that I've made and where it sits in that kind of stage. And I'm sure like anything, it's probably, if there's any truth in it, it's not like a one, two, three, and then I'm there. It's something more cyclical and I'm going to pass through each of those stages at times. But there's something about getting to that third stage and making the work that you need to make that then allows, you know, other people to, to, to see. And it's more interesting, but, um, yeah, just thinking about that kind of being being from a... Oh, Emma, Emma, I'm running out of battery. Sorry, oh, it's my time. Awesome. I'm running get a charger, won't you? No, no, no worries. Hey, you're back. Hi. Um, I sort of tried to do like a little mini eye then in the middle and then <laughs> you disappeared and then I realised it all stopped recording anyway, so it's fine. Oh. I'll, do, I'll do that at the, at the end. Um, <laughs> We probably should begin to wrap up in a second, but um, but yeah, to finish that that thought, where where were we? You the cycle, the cycle, yeah, and and the, the the notion of, and I mean, this is where terminology becomes like just not good enough. Language becomes not good enough when I think about talking about myself as a trans person, and mm. I presume that it's equally um, reductive at times when you're um, thinking about things from a race perspective. But, you know, to be, to, to, broadly, to be broadly speaking, to be a artist of a certain background, standing on a stage, talking to an audience of people who are yeah. predominantly not from that background, yeah. um, I found that really kind of, yeah, an interesting um, series of things. Yeah. And I think it... Yeah, I, I also am very much enamoured of that cycle. Hmm. Um, because what I like about it, though, I guess, is that I think that... You're always. I think it's a circle, and your and your work is bouncing around yeah. between those different points. Because I think even at the beginning, when you're making something which is like, "Hey guys, we're all the same," it's like the thing that rises up from you on bibbing that goes, "No, we're fucking not." Then we're like a bit in the middle, and then when you go back to it, you're like, "That was kind of hard style, wasn't it? That doesn't fit with everything else." So I can remember like in the first dark and lovely. And, like, I was really, like, heartbroken when I went back to that bit of text because the most sort of um, radical bit in it, mm. I, like, drowned myself out with, like, hair dryers. So yeah. I was that terrified of saying it. 
And I don't think I had realised at the time mm. that that was what I was doing. And I was like, what is this thing where, like, 22-year-old Selena knows that she really needs to say this stuff, but is so scared of saying it that she yeah. makes it impossible for an audience to hear it. And I was like, I now say stuff, like, much worse, hmm. inverted commas, than that on Twitter on, like, a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. But, like, back then, saying that stuff was, like terrifying and I think that <laughs> yeah I just think it's really beautiful and it comes back again to that thing of what it's like in life as well I think I think in life you're constantly going through that thing of bouncing up bouncing around on that circle and Something which I'm wrestling with at the moment, and I know I want to spend a lot of time thinking about when I'm on the platform, is the term the white gaze. Yeah. Because I think it's something which is thrown around an awful lot, and I think different people mean very different things when they say it. Mm-hmm. And I want to be very clear on what it is that I mean when I say it, because it worries me that something which is so often used as critique mm-hmm. has become so deeply subjective. Mm-hmm. Um. And something I kind of wanted to ask you about, but we might be out of time, I guess, is how you're feeling about this new chapter that none of us have yet, none of us is yet a robot, is kind of going to embark on when you're specifically performing to trans audiences. And if there's like a different set of like anxieties potentially that accompany that, because I know that when I was doing Dark and Lovely in London, and it was going out largely in front of audiences that were black women, there was a whole other set of anxiety mm. that went with that for me. It wasn't, especially in, in places in the text where I'm being more critical, Yeah, it didn't necessarily feel like it guaranteed any kind of safety for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just wondered if you wanted to talk about that because I'm interested. Well, I'll tell you what... Um... Here's a here's what maybe we'll do. Um, we'll have that conversation, but yeah. for the listeners from Mayfest Radio, you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to download the podcast because we're up to our time slot. So you know, it's like a red button technology on the BBC. If you want more of this conversation, there will be there will be more to have. Um, in which case, you can go to iTunes or to Podbean, and you can look for uh, "Not Yet a Robot." podcast and um hear the end of this so maybe for listeners who are listening on that anyway you sit tight mm-hmm. don't go anywhere but just to wrap up for the mayfest radio people mm-hmm. i guess it'd be really good to say what are you looking forward to in the festival or what else is still to come or what's like your highlight or something like that um so i'm not gonna get to see it but um i saw i think I've, yeah, i have i saw like Wrecking Ball, like early days of Action oh, yeah. Heroes Wrecking Ball in Mayfest last year. I'm like a bit of an Action Hero super fan anyway. Yeah. They're really great. Um, so I'm sad I won't see that. I'm finally going to go and see Sue, Sue McCain, uh, and I start again tomorrow, awesome. which I'm really excited about. And this piece called It Folds by a dance company. And I sort of read the copy and I was like, I don't understand this. I'm intrigued, what? absolutely intrigued. What was the copy? Um, so yeah, I think it's a great program. Um, what, what was the copy? What was the thing that intrigued you about the piece? It was like 
a piñata sways in the breeze. <laughs> a straight-talking ghost. There's like a list of really strange images. Awesome. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> I don't understand what it is. And then there's like um, a little video beneath. It's not played. But the image that's like the screen that's frozen is like a pantomime horse and like uh, an elder gentleman sat in a party hat at the front of the stage. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sold. Awesome. Oh, that does sound great. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm just looking at the programme now because I didn't make it down. Like this whole like escapade of doing something for Mayfest Radio was designed to facilitate me actually coming down to Bristol and being in a you know in an actual room um which didn't happen but there's some things that I saw at Forest last year Vincent Gambini's This Is Not A Magic Show I really loved really loved that last year um and that's on or has been on but yeah really I mean it's it's a very strong it's a very strong program huh um well okay but so goodbye, Mayfest Radio. Bye, Mayfest. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>